Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Ben. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave a comment on YouTube. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast, and I'm joined in the studio by our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward. And joining us down the line from Chester is Ben Walker, our senior data journalist and polling expert. Now, I'm actually going to go first on the questions this week because the other day I was contacted by someone who I think might be our youngest listener. Casper, who is 13 and listens to every episode of The New Statesman podcast, sent me an 104-page Labour manifesto he and his two friends wrote and designed themselves. And yes, Rachel Reeves, if you're listening, it is fully costed. Um, I was really impressed by his commitment and we had a nice chat and he sent in a question. He asks, is there a growing need for a new political party in the UK and how possible is it to win? We've seen Macron's party in France, the Farmers' Party in the Netherlands, and I'm sure there's more. Even with first past the post, can a new party get the support needed and win a decent amount of seats? This is a really good question. And I think a lot of our younger listeners will think, why? Why are we trapped in this strange two-party system? Mm-hmm. And why do, in most of the country, in the safe seats that we're voting in, we have very little influence over the election result? Um, so, Ben, why don't you give us um, a little summary of why it's so difficult for smaller parties, even the established ones, to break through in this kind of voting system? Just a, just a little summary. Uh, <laughs> during the Brexit wars, we saw a lot of attempts to set up new political parties, and they all got off the ground for about 10 minutes on Twitter, on Facebook, and then they failed very quickly. Um, th- this is the thing with political parties. And if you don't mind, I'd like to give a little bit of a personal anecdote for, for some of you who may know. I'm, I'm now a Borough councillor, um, majority 1,833. Net worth. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was made a candidate last year back in, back in March. And my ward, the ward that I represent, is 18,000 people, 11,000 voters. And the thing in Chester is we campaign every, every week. We gave it in a pretty intense campaign, even as well when we had the by-election here as well. And I noticed that, you know, since I became a candidate and once it came to election day, though there were 11,000 voters, we only were able to speak to, I think it was like 4,000 people. So 4,000 out of 11,000, that's not a lot. 
And by the way, that is actually 4,000 conversations, you know, marking how you're intending to vote, what your passions are, problems, you're going to back me, so on and so forth. And, and I've just, I don't think anyone realizes the reach you need to have to break through to voters, to break through to people, because the turnout in my ward was 30%. And I got 52%. So what's that? I got 15% of the electorate voting for me. That's fine in a local election, but it's not anything to really shout home about. And um, so, so, yes, reach is absolutely important. If you had an intense campaign, you're only going to reach, I don't know, about a third to potentially even half of your electorate because you don't have, you need the foot soldiers, you need the ground campaign. And you need to also recognise that you could talk to as many people as you want, but what you're used to doing matters more. It's all about behavior. What's going to change your behavior, right? Um, if your polling station is changed, if it's in a different direction, if it's a different place, your behavior is going to change. And how many, how many, how many voters are going to be turned off by that? If you've got a new party, how many of you are just going to stick to what you know? Better the devil you know than the devil you don't, really. And that's what I think sort of leads it on. But but to, to be specific about the question, why don't we have another political party? Because there's always an appetite for one. There's always there's always an appetite. It's not just policies. The Greens like to say, oh, we've got the most popular policies in the country. It is about personality. It is about brand. It is about, do you trust them? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, instance, always pointed to their popular policies. But did voters trust Jeremy Corbyn to implement them without crashing the building down? Very few voters did. And that's why he never really had as much cook through as possible. Now, now this is a long-winded way of getting around the question. But the truth is, you, you have long-established prejudices in voters in the country that you it will that, that that by the way campaigning won't unpick because just to reiterate i only spoke to about a third of my electorate um and 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 brand press game you know the press is centered in westminster they're centered in sw1 they're centered where you know power, power is rightly how are you going to break into that unless you have something that is both top down and ground up you need like tens of thousands of activists to be ground up and you need um, parliamentary backing to be top down. And you, no one has ever really had that. Change UK had some MPs from the Labour Party, one or two from the Tories as well, but they had nothing in terms of a ground campaign. Very few activists came over. I think about a dozen councillors went their way. Uh, the Greens, however, are something different. They've got the ground campaign. They've got the ground campaign. They don't have a top down media war. And what you're seeing is... They're having a bottom-up surge, which is why they're winning council seats, but they're not doing anything nationally. So, yeah, you need two bottom-up and top-down things, really. And um, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, especially with the rules um, of our broadcasters as well. Yeah. So you, you've got to have a certain amount of representation to earn yourself a certain amount of time you know, for the BBC to dedicate to you, for example. So it's very difficult to break through into the media media ecosystem as well as break through that first-past-the-post system as well. Yeah, completely. I think we, yeah, exactly. We have to, first of all, talk about first-past-the-post. That's the key reason. If we look, for instance, at 2015, how well UKIP did, they got 3.8 million seats, uh, votes, sorry, and they ended up with, was it one seat, I think? So there's a, a large disproportionality there, which favours the two main parties and uh, makes it extremely difficult for third parties to break through. You saw it the same with the 1983 election when the alliance between the SDP and the Liberal Party led to, I think it was between 20 and uh, 25% of votes, but they only got 23 seats. So there's a huge disparity there, which basically blocks off third parties from entering the House of Commons. And that leads to all of the other benefits, the money, the media attention, the time of Prime Minister's questions, uh, the, the officers, all of it, if you don't have seats in the House of Commons. It's one of the reasons, I think, why 
UKIP and other small parties found it so helpful to have MEPs mm-hmm. because it means you're having pe- you've got people who have a salary, uh, they have offices, they have expenses. It just allows a party to function. And then the other thing worth noting is just the, the sheer dominance of the two major parties of the past hundred years or so. We have to remember that it was it was in the early 20th century the Liberals and the Conservatives that that ruled the roost, and then we had the collapse of the Liberals in the uh, following the First World War and during the 1920s. And then since then, it's been largely the Labour and the Conservative Party. And what they've both done extremely well is co-opt issues that that are profit or, you know, uh, seized upon by fringe parties and uh, other groups within society. They're, they're both, as parties, quite broad churches who are able to see where politics is going and move towards that, especially the Conservative Party. Look what David Cameron did in the late noughties about co-opting the green agenda, about moving uh, towards more socially liberal values. He saw where Tony Blair was and he moved towards that. And similarly in the 2010s, he, he tried to shut down UKIP and uh, uh, and its successes by offering his backbenchers um, a referendum. So I think both of the two main parties are quite aware of the fact that they need to maintain their own position within the political system by co-opting issues and debates that other third parties raise. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because both of the main parties are broad churches and that is also a result of first past the post. They have to be coalitions in their own right. And I think that's why some of these centrist, so-called centrist parties that sprung up since Brexit, because before Brexit, you did have a few sort of people trying to make new parties, but they were usually for local issues, things like Cornish independence and other kind of things, whereas these more nationally focused new parties sprung up after Brexit for the kind of homeless centrist voters who felt that they weren't represented by either party. I remember going out campaigning with Renew. You mentioned Renew, Ben, which formed in 2018, I think. Um, And I remember going out on the road with them in Milton Keynes and just people were just so baffled by, by who they were. I mean, you could just see that it was just an impossible operation. But the reason why I think that those kind of groups, there was another one, Advanced Together, founded after Grenfell, they don't catch on because most of their sort of bugbears are represented somewhere within the major two parties. And that is another symptom of first past the post as well. But I think that, you know, these smaller groups, these pressure groups, if you like, do have, um, that means they do have an outsized influence on parties. So you saw obviously UKIP with the Brexit referendum is the big example. But look at what happened. I mean, our questioner was asking about um, international examples. Look at what happened with the Teal candidates in the Australian election, the most recent Australian election, this kind of loosely aligned group of independent kind of community rooted politicians who were focused on climate and they, you know, they were pivotal. I mean, they they stood in these these safe liberal party seats, and they won six of them, and they changed the conversation around that around that election in favour of the Labour Party, which did win power. So there is a lesson there, I think, to be learned. Change UK. Similarly, I mean, people laughed at them. These were the people who defected from the main parties to form this anti-Brexit kind of group. They did actually really influence Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn was spooked by them. He changed Labour's Brexit line in 2019 to one that supported a second referendum. And that, you know, had huge political consequences. Yeah, and yeah, it's worth re-looking at Brexit and how it ripped apart politics and opened up all these little gaps that new parties could try and fill. I mean, that's why you had the Brexit party and that's why it did so well back in 21, no, 2019, 2019. when they had that big surge uh, before the locals and then in the European election that year as well. And then what you basically saw is those gaps got filled. 
Conservatives left the European Union. Keir Starmer's clamped down on speculation about their Europe position. They don't really want to talk about it before the next ne- uh, next general election. So it's no longer an issue um, that third parties can talk about. It's one of the reasons reform is uh, doing so badly, as we've often spoken about. They don't have that unifying issue that Brexit was. They didn't. They, then they now talk about. They spend lots of their time talking about conspiracy theories and monetary policy reform and immigration and public sector reform. I mean, some of them are important issues, some of them aren't. But they aren't filling a big gap in the market because people aren't looking for something and they're getting, broadly, I think, they're getting what they want from the two main parties. Yeah, and they're fishing in the same pool as another small party that we have at the moment, the Reclaim Party. Yeah. And this is kind of like the UKIP for culture is how they build themselves, but they are sort of trying to drum up that, Populist, I mean, I, I would argue slightly conspiracy-minded sort of section. Um, under Lawrence Fox. Yeah. yeah, under Lawrence Fox. And again, you can see that the audience for that is small numerically, but it does it does sort of have an outsized kind of echo around social media mm. and some of the preoccupations of some politicians on the right of the Conservative Party. Yeah, and the, someone we've not mentioned yet is the SNP. The SNP mm. aren't one of the two main parties. Yeah. But if you look at their influence on UK politics in the past... 15 or uh, 20 years or so, it's been massive. They are the ones who secured a referendum back in 2014. And then it also, when just thinking about that and thinking about devolution in general, they, there are other opportunities for parties that aren't um, the two big ones to come forward. And then also we have, we must mention, uh, Northern Ireland and the, the disparate group of parties. So there are opportunities for smaller parties to get into office and actually hold proper power. Mm. And ALBA too, as well, yeah. in Scotland. I mean, they another pro-independence party, Alex Salmond, a very big figure, they've managed to rattle the SNP establishment with their different line on gender recognition, on a stronger line on pushing for a referendum. They had, you know, a bit of an influence in that in that leadership contest, you know, t- sticking their oar in, um, suggesting to the SNP that they unite ahead of the next election. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these these parties, even though they may remain small, they can have an influence on leaders' decisions. After the break, Freddie will introduce his question. So give us a clue on what that's on, Freddie. It's potentially a tricky one for Andy Burnham again. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, Freddie. So, what's your question? Okay, it's a question from Tom in London. He asks, "Why is Andy Burnham not in more hot water over scandals and failings at Greater Manchester Police?" Okay, this is a really important question. I'm glad that Tom sent it in. Three women have made claims about Greater Manchester Police, with one saying she was drugged and sexually assaulted during her detention by the police in 2021. There are two hours of footage that have gone missing from the period of detention. And the force has denied withholding that footage and 
Andy Burnham, as Greater Manchester Mayor, he is the police commissioner for this force, he's ordered a review of these cases. I think this is a really important story, not just because of the allegations at hand, but because of the way that we see our police forces um, are run. So who yeah. do we think is head of head of Manchester Police? Do we see it as Andy Burnham or do we see it as the as the the police chief in the struggles of the Met, Sadiq Khan has often come under pressure. And you can see in London campaigns, often his conservative and other opponents will sort of pin any problems with crime and any problems within the police force on his mayoralty because he is, again, as mayor, the commissioner. Is there a problem with the sort of accountability, the lines of accountability here in terms of our police? Yeah, I think I think there are. I think it's slightly confused. If you look at Sadiq Khan, it's often... He and the Home Secretary are pointing at each other going, it's your fault and it's yeah. not my fault. In part, that's a symptom of uh, the Met Police having national responsibilities, the counter-terrorism and uh, things like that, alongside policing London itself. But it is an interesting question. I think it's a great question. I think just mentioning Sadiq Khan, as we both have done immediately, it just highlights how often the media, uh, and us as well probably, also just focus on the Met. I think it's because we're all in London, but then also because uh, it's also the, the national functions that they also hold but you know Manchester is also is the second biggest police force in the country I think and they've had a series of problems they went um, into special measures I think it was back in 2020 yeah. after they didn't record one in five crimes for a, for a period of a year so they had there was a number of failings that they were put in special measures for and then they did improve they did get taken out of special uh, measures back in October 2022 and they, they they recovered on a large number of metrics including response times and things like that quite quickly but in terms of accountability i think it's super super interesting policing crime commissioners uh, they were brought in in 2011 by the coalition government and the idea was that you'd have this elected uh, person who was responsible for the police what does that mean it means that they appoint the chief constable it means they're responsible for their budget it also means that they set their overall policing strategy you know what sort of crime do you want to focus on where do you want to put the money and the idea um, yeah was to give the public a lever to pull to influence how uh, their area area was policed but we've not really seen that and i think one of the problems is that we've had such a low turnout for all of these police and crime commissioner elections. Often it's around 15%. So it's very hard to say that the electorate or constituents are holding the police and crime commissioner and indirectly the police to account if no one's actually voting in those elections. So what you've seen since then and since around 2013 onwards, when we had all the discussions about metro mayors, is that the police and crime commissioners have been subsumed into the metro metro mayoralties so Andy Burnham effectively has that role now as part of his role as uh, Manchester mayor so there is I think there is a slight confusion Andy can Andy Burnham can call for a, a review and he can try and hold the chief constable to account because he can ultimately get rid of them but it, yeah it's, it's really tricky and I think the devolved administrations do it in different ways and I don't think anyone would admit that um, it's gone particularly well in the past 10 years. Yeah, I do think this is a sort of wider lesson about devolution in general, which is, you know, uh, both main parties want to devolve more power. They kind of talk about it as this catch-all solution to local problems. Yeah. But actually, you do get a too many cooks situation. I mean, the police policing example is a perfect example of that. You have the Home Secretary, you have the mayor in some places, you have the police and crime commissioner in the places without metro mayoralties, you have the police chief themselves. Mm. In the end, it means that a lot of people can point the blame at other people. And actually, you know, what's right for victims 
falls through all of these stalls. I remember speaking to um, Ian Blair, who was Met Commissioner in the new Labour years, mm. and he said that he felt like one man, two governors, you know, that play one man, two governors, because he had the Home Secretary on one side and he had the London Mayor on the other side. And, you know, they were often trying to take credit for the things that the Met were doing well and blame each other for the, for the failings. And I think we've seen a lot of that with the situation of Sadiq Khan uh, in London. Um, and actually, I mean, these police and crime commissioners, who, according to the people that I've spoken to when I've been reporting on the police, have taken away some of that accountability because you don't get as many police chiefs on the airwaves, you know, on media doing interviews, yeah. taking um, responsibility for the for their forces' mistakes as you used to because you now have this extra layer mm. and it's basically like an evasive politician being interviewed again rather than someone who actually knows what's going on in their force on the ground. Um, that apparently has been a big change over the past, I mean, when, when, when were they first voted in 2012? Mm -hmm. So over the past, uh, over a decade, of having these PCCs in. And actually, Labour has toyed with getting rid of this system uh, over the years yeah, as well. Yeah, and as we discussed back in Crime Week, I can't remember when it was, but it was Labour. <laughs> Every week is Crime Week, crime week. in Britain. Um, <laughs> and yeah, one of their key things is they want to regulate the system by which uh, police forces are held to account. At the moment, Labour is complaining about the fact that individual police forces have individual standards and they want to standardise all of that so we get a, a, a greater understanding of what police, is, police forces are up to. So, yeah, they're very aware of it. And I think Yvette Cooper's team and Labour in general are definitely looking at uh, police forces and how they're regulated and how we hold them to accountable quite closely. I think that's really important because if you look at the case of these three women who were strip searched, this was in 2021. This yeah. was in the period of special measures. Mm. Special measures is supposed to be a, a period of heightened scrutiny. So, I mean, we don't know what's happened in this case, but when we do know the details, there may be questions to be answered on why this wasn't picked up at, at the time. But Ben, can you give us a bit of an idea? Because we've been talking about PCCs. Freddie mentioned the low turnout. How much voter engagement is there really with these elections? And has it sort of waxed and waned over the years since they were introduced? Yeah, so they were introduced back in 2012. And I think the first election for them, I remember because I was in high school at the time, first election for them was in the middle of November 2012. And the turnout, back then was around about 15 or so percent, which was astonishing. It was, it was ridiculously low. That's lower than anything we normally get in local elections. And then we had, and then we fast forwarded to 2016 and turnout decided to start to rise. And, and I, I, don't, I don't want to say voters got normalised to the idea of voting in PCC elections, but more people were engaging with them. So it went up from an average of about 15 to 20 percent to around about 25 percent in 2016 in the PCC election. It's get, it was getting closer to 30%, 25 to 30%. So we are, despite, kind of run, runs contrary to some narratives. We are, we are seeing greater engagement in it. Now, bear in mind, in local council elections, turnout is normally around about 35%. So a PCC vote, you know, hovering around 30, that's still subpar for our standard uh, engagements with, 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 with local contests, I suppose. Um, and uh, Andy Burnham, when, when he first stood for the Greater Manchester Meralty, um, won very convincingly more than Labour normally ever wins in Greater Manchester, but only on a turnout of twenty nine percent in twenty twenty one. It was a turnout of thirty five percent. So you can see a big increase, despite, by the way, twenty twenty one was held in the immediate aftermath of of lockdown. So I think over time institutions do get normalised to voters. We do we do tend to um, you know 
vote in what we've known has existed for however long. And uh, we are seeing that in mayoralties. We are slowly seeing that with PCC votes, though I still for the life of me can't understand why we have them. In the case of Burnham, though, in the case of Burnham, and I wonder why he's not getting enough flack or as much stick as perhaps he should, let's say, if it was, you know, Sadiq Khan down in London or or or, or, or in Scotland. Um, I, I think it I think it comes down to the fact that that we can't measure the public uh, attention on it, although we, we could try to. But but is Burnham being associated with it in the eyes of the public? We don't really know. And I, and I suspect, I'm minded to suspect no. And I just want to give a little example here. So um, 2020, lockdown, first one. We were freed for a little while in July, in the summer months, I suppose. And across the whole of the UK, lockdown laws were pretty much the same until we moved to that tier system, if you remember that horrible, horrid tier system. And in that period of time, um, Boris Johnson saw his numbers rise and, and, and plateau, plateau quite, a little, quite a little bit. Um, and I always remember this, in Scotland, if you asked Scots, who do you, who do you think is handling COVID well? Very few Scots said Boris Johnson, but lots of Scots obviously said Nicola Sturgeon. And it's worth bearing in mind at that time when that poll was asked, there was no difference in policy between Sturgeon and Johnson. It was all it was all about what you know your your own personal prejudice. Let, let, let's not be around the bush. Voters are prejudiced. It, we, if Sturgeon does the same thing as Johnson does, I'll say Sturgeon did it brilliantly and Johnson did it terribly. A lot of voters are willing to do that. They 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 very much like that. And I suspect maybe if we were to measure the public opinion element of this this in Greater Manchester with relation to Mr. Burnham, I suspect one voters aren't clued up enough to know it is it falls under Burnham's purview. And two, I don't think voters will necessarily care because they probably view it as a nationwide institutional problem that that uh, mm. needs to be sorted down in Westminster. I, I just don't think voters associate the bad things with their local leaders as much as they uh, as they do with Westminster. Although, bear in mind, the third most unpopular tax in the country is council tax. So actually, I do think if, if you're looking to bash a local politician, it will obviously be a local council. But a local mayor... Not always. Yeah, that's another layer that I forgot to mention is the local council separate from from the mayor's office. Thanks, Ben. uh, And thanks, Freddie. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send us a question, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Or if you're watching on YouTube, just leave a comment under the video. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker. Tomorrow, we're bringing you a reflective audio long read from the author and climate journalist, George Monbiot, who shares how he manages to keep positive while reporting on the climate crisis. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. This episode is produced by Matt Murphy and the executive producer is Chris Stone.